Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Hi there. If you've been enjoying The Opportunist so far, season two or season one or both, could you please take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts, rate the show and write a review? It really does help us so much. It helps new listeners be able to find the show. Look, I don't make the rules, but I do make a podcast. It's called The Opportunist, and you're listening to it right now. I love making this show. I am so appreciative of every single person that listens to it. One of the things that really helps us out is getting the ratings and the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for everyone that has already left a review and rated the podcast. It really means so much to me. Also, if you ever want to just reach out, you can always email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. We read every single email. This episode contains disturbing content, including conversations about cancer. Listener discretion advised. In September of 2001, Supervisory Special Agent Judy Lewis-Arnold and her team had been investigating Robert Courtney in Kansas City for almost one month, and it had quickly become the FBI's number one priority. Over 100 agents had been relocated to Kansas City. This is Melissa Osborne. I remember Judy coming out to the squad area, and she goes, do you want to go with me? We need to fly to Washington, D.C., and we're going to meet with the new FBI director, Robert Mueller, and we're going to talk to him about the case and, and some of the main people in the FBI office in the Hoover building. Yes, the same Robert Mueller that oversaw the investigation of Donald Trump in 2017. He was the FBI director from 2001 to 2013. Because of the major case status, Judy Lewis-Arnold and Melissa Osborne planned to brief Robert Mueller in person. They got on a plane to Washington, D.C. on September 10th, 2001. And on the morning of September 11th, went to FBI headquarters to brief the director. And we were in the, the briefing room waiting for the director to come in. And one of his aides came in and said, the, the director's going to be somewhat delayed. Apparently, there's been an accident in New York. A plane has flown into the World Trade Center, which they believed at that time was an accident. It was just a horrible accident. Well, obviously, when the, the aide came back not too long after that and said, uh, this was not an accident and the director won't be coming in for your briefing. The meeting did not happen. The FBI's priorities immediately shifted, as did their resource allocation. We lost a lot of our manpower because a lot of the, most of the manpower then was shifted to, obviously, the events of 9-11. But irrespective, we still got support and we still got the job done. The first meeting with the FBI and Dr. Hunter was in July of 2001. The sting operations and the raid on Courtney's pharmacy happened in early August. 
Courtney was arrested on August 15th, less than a month before 9-11. And just as the story was breaking national headlines, national news became consumed with 9-11 coverage. At least we, you know, were well on our way to, um, to bringing the whole thing to fruition. But it was a very difficult time in our field office and in a lot of field offices because you have a lot of emotion and a lot of, lot of angst. This year, 2021, it will be 20 years since all of this happened. 20 years since Robert Courtney was caught. 20 years since 9-11. If you're old enough to remember September 11th, then you know how distressing it was. There was a palpable angst in the U.S. For those impacted by the Robert Courtney investigation, the fall of 2001 was a particularly dark time. It wasn't just that this one man, Robert Courtney, did something terrible. It was also that the world was changing in a way that was hard to understand. It's, it's very um, disconcerting that that kind of evil exists in the world. But on the other hand, it was an honor, if you will, to be able to work on the investigation and to be able to, to bring it to a successful conclusion and to bring some sort of peace. And, you know, I don't like the word closure, but, you know, to people who so desperately needed it. And, uh, and I'm glad that, that people haven't forgotten and, you know, that there are still people who um, are concerned about the victims. In a time of uncertainty in the world, in a time of darkness, of lost trust and many lost lives. At least Robert Courtney was caught. At least he was behind bars. And he would stay there. For now. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist. A podcast about regular people who turn sinister simply by embracing opportunity. This is Season 2, Episode 4 of 4. I'm Hannah Smith. There were more than 500 civil lawsuits filed against Robert Courtney. Mike Ketchmark's law office handled many of those lawsuits, including 173 wrongful death claims. Only one lawsuit went to trial, and that was the case of Georgia Hayes. The prosecution aimed to prove that by diluting chemotherapy IVs, Robert Courtney caused physical harm to Georgia Hayes and the other victims. She um, was a very strong person who was insistent that she wanted to take this case to trial and wanted to make sure he was held accountable. The trial began on October 8th, 2002. Georgia Hayes had ovarian cancer, and she was not going to get better. You know, normally cases will take longer to process, but the judge was really adamant to push this case to trial because Georgia Hayes, who was um, the, the victim in that case, was still alive. And everyone felt it was very important that she have a chance to, to talk to the jury and to tell her story to the jury. And, and um, unfortunately, she subsequently passed away. Hayes was first diagnosed with cancer in 1996. Dr. Verda Hunter was her oncologist. She received chemotherapy and went into remission. But the cancer returned in 1999. 
Dr. Hunter was her oncologist again, but by that time, Dr. Hunter had moved into the research medical center and was now using Robert Courtney to mix her chemotherapy meds. In the year 2000, Georgia Hayes underwent multiple surgeries and then received 27 rounds of chemotherapy, all prepared by Robert Courtney. On the second day of the trial, Georgia Hayes testified. She recounted how she felt no side effects from the chemotherapy that she received in 2000, which was much different than before in 1996. Hayes said that she knew the treatment wasn't working. She could feel it. She could feel the cancer growing in her body. At the time, she believed that it was because the cancer came back stronger and that the chemotherapy just couldn't beat it. But then came August 13th, 2001. Georgia Hayes saw the news about Robert Courtney on TV. When she found out her chemotherapy was diluted, she said it was the worst thing. Worse than finding out she had cancer. The most moving thing that I remember her saying, Adam, during the whole trial was when she was talking to the jurors and she turned and talked to them and said that what she wanted from them was for them to be able to order that Robert Courtney be forced to have the the pictures of every one of his victims on the cell of his, on the ceiling of his um, prison cell so he could see their faces. In order to try to prove that the subpotent chemotherapy treatment caused physical harm to patients, Ketchmark brought in a doctor to testify during the trial. Cruelest part of this is when he was diluting that drug down to anywhere from 10 to 30 percent. He really was just teaching the body to be resistant to this drug. And so after he was arrested and they got back to full treatment, it just wasn't working. Similarly to how we can become resistant to antibiotics, the doctor testified that the subpotent chemo infusions did not kill off the cancer cells. And in fact, it actually caused patients to become resistant to the chemotherapy. The civil trial consumed Mike Ketchmark's life for almost two years. He became close friends with some of the plaintiffs, many of whom were still battling cancer and knew that their time was limited. They wanted to to tell their story. So we would go in and take a videotaped deposition with them and let them speak sometimes in the last days of their life. During his trial, the jury saw some of that. We were not able to get copies of the deposition tapes for this podcast, but one of the things Ketchmark heard over and over again in these depositions from his clients was how disturbed people were by Courtney's demeanor. Um, Countless of my clients talked about how they thanked him, how he seemed like a kind man. And it's the kind of thing that you can imagine how that would haunt you as a victim so much more so than realizing that one day you read about some financial fraud you were the victim of. And it's such more of a, um, a personal betrayal that it's really hard to comprehend, especially with the man in a white lab coat. Was there anything that you learned about, like during the course of the trial or your research, that particularly surprised you? The most shocking thing to me is he didn't stop because at some point he had accumulated, I can't remember the exact number, but over $15 million. I mean, he had all the money he needed. And, and, and so what was he doing? Dr. Verda Hunter also took the stand during the trial. 
She recounted first hearing about the dilution on May 15, 2001, from a nurse on her staff. She detailed how difficult it was to find a place that had the capability to test a chemotherapy IV bag. She called the University of Kansas Department of Pharmacy. She called the Midwest Research Institute. Neither had the ability to test the solutions. She then called the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. They could not test it either. She kept meeting dead ends, but felt it was critical to try to find out if Courtney was actually diluting these chemotherapy IVs. She testified that during this time, she reached out to Eli Lilly for help, the manufacturer of Gemzar, and they did not offer any help. She was never able to find a facility that could test the Gemzar, but she finally found a lab in Philadelphia that could test a sample of Taxol. And that's the sample that came back with a third of the prescribed dose that led her to tip off the FBI. During the investigation for the civil trial, something disturbing came to light. It turns out that Eli Lilly opened an internal investigation into Robert Courtney two years prior to 2001. The investigation was to try to find out if Courtney was sourcing Gemzar from somewhere else besides Eli Lilly. But the source of his meds could not be determined. So they closed the investigation. Mike Ketchmark believes that Eli Lilly knew Robert Courtney was engaging in some kind of illegal behavior. And he says they had an obligation to alert the consumer. And they did not do that. I don't think that they can just wash their hands of it. And that was my primary argument, all of our primary arguments involving the drug companies. The kind of the pushback from the pharmaceutical companies who were involved in this was, hey, it was safe when it left our factory. It's not on us. It's on the pharmacist. And the pushback that I always delivered is, wait, is there, do we not have any, any system in place to, to make sure that the ultimate consumer is getting drugs that are safe? And there's all of this money that's involved in this, but we can't take the, have any basic safety precautions that are in place. And the answer in this case was the most overwhelming no, that there's nothing to protect people. Eli Lilly and Bristol-Myers Squibb took the position that once they sold the drugs, they were no longer responsible for what anyone did to those drugs. Regardless, they reached a settlement with the plaintiffs even before the Georgia Hayes trial. And Eli Lilly ended up agreeing to pay $48 million, and Bristol-Myers Squibb ended up paying $24 million. The fact that Robert Courtney was able to purchase many of his medications from a non-reporting drug wholesaler for years essentially allowed him to operate in secret. There was no way to track the amount of drugs that he was purchasing. That is no longer the case. The Drug Quality and Security Act was enacted by Congress in 2013, and it requires drug wholesalers to report their sales. A lot of people put a lot of blame on the drug companies and said they should have known. This isn't very popular, but I don't necessarily believe that they could have or should have known, because at that point, things weren't necessarily reported unless there was something that would key you in on looking at it uh, before. Now, Eli Lilly's a little bit different because, you know, there were conversations with Daryl Ashley, and there was also the letter that Verda Hunter sent to Eli Lilly. I think that some of their... Executives just ignored it. Eli Lilly did know about the dilution as early as May 15th, 2001. 
and they did not report it to the FBI or take any further action to have the drugs tested. And so many people have placed the blame on Eli Lilly, as well as the sales rep, Daryl Ashley. You know, the guy who originally brought attention to Robert Courtney, the one who pointed out that the drugs might be diluted. He also took the fall. The story became that Daryl Ashley was more interested in his commission than public safety. This is Daryl. It showed me the best and the worst in people. Daryl can't speak about specifics of the lawsuit, but he said people needed someone to blame. So they blamed the drug companies and by proxy blamed him. This program, the opportunists, I saw many opportunists during that the one thing that that people would tell me is that they did not know that uh, some of these patients had families because they always came in by themselves and all this. But as soon as the lawsuits hit, family members came out of the woodwork because they saw an opportunity for monies. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, just from a broader perspective, how this whole thing affected your life personally? Um, it affected it in two ways, to be honest with you. Um, during that time, I was going through, my wife had cancer and was going through treatment with her. My daughter had cancer, or not cancer, excuse me, she had kidney disease. And we we're dealing with that. Daryl lost his wife to cancer shortly after all of this. His daughter fortunately recovered. While this was all going on, there were a lot of reps in Kansas City who really wouldn't talk to me. They were like trying to steer clear because they were afraid that some of this would wash out on them and come to find out. I wasn't the only one who had my suspicions of Robert Courtney. And afterwards, there were people who came up to me and said, I knew he was crooked because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, where were you? Where were you when this happened? Why didn't you say anything? I'll say it was one of the loneliest times I've ever had working. It surprised me to hear Daryl say that there were other people who knew something criminal was going on with Robert Courtney. It might lead you to ask, why didn't anyone say anything? But look what happened to Daryl Ashley. He stood up, he said something, and he certainly wasn't thanked for it. Our drugs did not cure people, but they gave them time. They gave them hope. That's what what people with cancer look for. You know, if I'm not going to be cured, at least give me time and give me good time. And he took that away. He took that away. And, uh, you know, know, I'm I'm no hero but I am human and I live in Kansas city and this is my home. Many people criticized Daryl Ashley saying all he cared about was his commission. You could also look at it like his desire to get his sales commissions is the only way that Robert Courtney got caught. There was no system in place to track drug sales. No one else was paying attention. And because Daryl Ashley wanted commission for his sales, he uncovered a dilution scandal. Hey. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it product availability just one part that makes o'reilly stand apart the professional parts people oh 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 o'reilly auto parts on october 10th 2002 the civil trial came to a close the jury found robert courtney guilty and it's like one of the biggest ju- civil judgments there's been. It was $2 million in punitive damages, $225 million in actual damages. Actually, it was $2.2 billion in punitive damages. Billion. $2.2 billion. Punitive damages are there as a way to punish a defendant for their actions, but also to deter anyone else from engaging in similar behavior. Of course, Robert Courtney did not have $2.2 billion, but it was certainly symbolic of how the jury felt about Robert Courtney's actions. The judge reduced the punitive damages down to $300 million and the actual damages down to $30.5 million. Georgia Hayes included the money in a victim fund that would be split among hundreds of victims. Robert Courtney's pharmacy insurance was also found liable, Pharmacist Mutual, because of the way their contract with Courtney was worded. They have since changed the wording of their insurance contracts, and they no longer cover pharmacists who cause intentional harm. So there was a lot of that money, and all that money, about 55% of it went to the attorneys, and the attorneys also got court costs, what I understand. Wow. So wait, how much money was that? Like over... Well, it was $71 million plus $25 million. Wow. And the attorneys get 55%. Wow. That's what I understand. Of course, this was the civil trial. Robert Courtney still awaited his sentencing hearing, which would determine the length of his prison sentence. Georgia Hayes died at age 49. Before she died, she wrote Robert Courtney a letter. In the letter, she said... I don't condone what you did, but I can't go to my grave with hate or ill feelings on my mind. Therefore, I totally forgive you for your actions. On December 5th, 2002, at 8.30 a.m., Robert Courtney's sentencing hearing took place in a crowded courtroom in downtown Kansas City, Courtney had already pleaded guilty to diluting the chemotherapy IVs for 34 women, all patients of Dr. Verda Hunter. By the time of the hearing, 17 of those 34 victims had passed away. The courtroom was filled with victims and family members of victims, as well as Robert Courtney's family. An overflow room was set up that played audio of the proceedings. 
there was no jury since this was a sentencing hearing. And we sat actually in the jury box. So, which was a very interesting perspective because you're looking back at everybody. You can see everybody. You can see the prosecution. You can see the defense. And you can see all of the gallery. And then you can see anybody coming up making witness statements. U.S. Attorney Gene Porter was the prosecuting attorney. In his opening statement to the court, he read aloud the names of the 17 deceased victims, saying, Courtney took away the lives of these women to satisfy nearly incomprehensible greed. Porter spoke about the physical and psychological damage done by Courtney, recounting how he mixed the IV bags and brought them over to Dr. Hunter's office, how he walked through the room where the patients waited. This was not an anonymous crime. He saw the faces of his victims, even spoke to many of them, and seemed to display no guilt. J.R. Hobbs represented Robert Courtney. His address to the court focused on how cooperative Courtney had been and asked for a lighter sentence. Then you had a lot of the victims and the victim families make victim statements, and that was the hardest part. There were 10 victim statements read aloud at the hearing. Four of the statements were read by living victims and six by family members of victims who had passed away. This is Melissa Osborne again. You know, there was one brave lady. She got up and she looked right at Courtney and she told him, you will not define my life. I will live my life and you will not define my life or me. Um, There was a, a daughter of a victim Uh, who her mother had passed away, and she talked about how her mother would not get to see her graduate, would not get to see her get married, would not get to see or hold her grandchildren. One of the victims who spoke was Mary Ann Rhodes. She had multiple myeloma, a form of cancer that affects the plasma cells of the blood. She said her cancer was incurable, but with treatments, she hoped to prolong her life. She was taking injections three times a week to prolong the effects of the chemotherapy. These were self-administered. She recalled one time getting home after she picked up her shots, and she noticed the syringes were only half full. So she went back to the Research Medical Tower Pharmacy and spoke with Robert Courtney directly. She said that he acted surprised, and then he took them into the back room. He promptly returned with full syringes and handed them back to her. She said he touched her on the arm, looked her in the eye, and said, we will take care of you. On September 5th, she handed over two of those syringes to the FBI for testing after she learned about the investigation. Both shots were diluted. During her statement, Mary Ann Rhodes said, Early in the fall of 2001, I discovered I had another force invading my body. This one I hadn't counted on. I had to face the reality that someone had purposefully diluted the drugs going through my system. I have no idea how it affected my disease, but I felt violated. Even though I did not have the bruises, I felt that I had been violently invaded. Judy Lewis Arnold remembers what it was like to sit in the jury box that day and listen to all the victim statements. Now, there was not a dry eye in the house through most of that procedure, and... Even the judge had to take a moment, you know, because it was just so powerful, so emotional, so incredibly heart-wrenching. Robert Courtney sat at the defense table while all the victim statements were read. And he never 
ever showed one ounce of emotion as these people were telling their stories. He sat there looking at these people like, like he was listening to a third party story, you know? Like they were talking about somebody else. He never, I, he never saw himself as guilty of a crime. I think this was before his conviction, but he was up at um, a holding facility in Lansing, Kansas. And he was complaining that, you know, that he didn't think that he should be there. And he wanted to know why he was locked up with all those bad people. This statement stood out to Judy Lewis-Arnold because in her mind, among all of the people being held at that facility, Robert Courtney had committed by far the most egregious crime. And yet he saw the others there as criminals, but not himself. And so they're probably looking at you, Robert, going, what are we doing with this guy? Would you say something like that to him? And then he just wouldn't register it? There was nothing you could say to Robert that really made him register anything. After all the victim statements were read, before the judge was to make his decision on how much time Robert Courtney would serve, Robert Courtney gave a statement. This is Gene Porter reading Courtney's statement. I have committed a terrible crime, and I deeply and sincerely regret it. I wish I could change everything. It is very traumatic listening to these people. For the rest of my life, any good I can do, any kindness I can show, I'll do. That's what he said. Hmm. Very short. Yes. Judge Ordy Smith said to Courtney before sentencing him, your crimes are a shock to the civilized conscience. This is Melissa Osborne. He gave him the maximum of the 30 years and um, made the restitution to be $10.6 million. And, you know, I, everybody had their thoughts on this. You had all the victims and the victim family saying it's not enough. You know, there was a lot of emotion, you know? I mean, it's like... We wanted as much information, you know, that we could give to the public. And I, I wish that we could have charged murder. I wish that we could have gone and, and sent him away forever in a day. Courtney had previously pledged $1 million to Northland Cathedral, his church, having already donated 600000 Northland Cathedral returned that money, and it was added to the victim fund. Courtney's pharmacy license was revoked for life. The money was split between 4,000-plus victims, depending on a variety of factors, including how many diluted medications they had each received. Robert Courtney immediately started the appeals process. His appeals were all denied, that is, until July of 2020. Families across Kansas City are stunned that Robert Courtney is being released from prison and allowed home confinement. Courtney is the pharmacist who admits he diluted 98,000 prescriptions to make extra money. Courtney's release was set for July 17th, 2020. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. We all learned about Robert Courtney from the moment it happened. It was breaking news in Kansas City. It's breaking news nationally. It was the big story of August 2001. This is Quentin Lucas, the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri. Quentin, or Mayor Q, as he's known affectionately by locals, was elected in 2019 as the city's third black mayor. Even though he wasn't the mayor at the time of these events, as a native Kansas Cityan, he remembers them well. I first learned about it probably watching the local news, uh, and I remember them talking about this scheme, and it was the sort of thing that just seems implausible uh, in some ways because you just have to trust your pharmacist, right? There's almost no way to check your pharmacist. Of course, we know that pharmacists are generally viewed as trustworthy people, but were there other traits that Robert Courtney possessed that made him seem even more trustworthy? And I just wonder, change a demographic on something about Dr. Courtney. What does that tell us? Does it lead to, instead of us saying, let's say it's a woman, she's a great family mom who's invested in things. Instead, she's a vixen. She gets some nickname, right? She's some terrible person. If it's a person of color, right, what does that mean? Does it mean that it's a black pharmacist who should have never been in the position? Robert Courtney was protected by the appearance of trustworthiness. He always wore a suit. He was always clean-shaven, well-groomed. And he is white. I mean, that's what's kind of interesting in this story, because you got a market from central casting, Kansas City. I mean, what do you think about Kansas City? Like, they have football and maybe barbecue, and then you're like, middle of the country. Is it in Missouri or Kansas? You know? (laughs) And you get a, a, a defendant from central casting, nondescript, not really that handsome, but not whatever white man who's just like, yeah, right, who does normal things. And we have to test ourselves and see, huh, how does this make us feel? How much change do we want to make? And how much do we remember it? And for this black dude in the Midwest, I guess I remember it a lot. It concerns me still. Robert Courtney's impending release brought up questions, not just about his actions, but also about how he has been perceived and treated as an upper-class white criminal. But you can't talk about race in Kansas City without talking about the city's history. See, in the 1980s and 1990s, when Courtney was committing his crimes, Kansas City was very racially divided. The Research Medical Center is located in the Swope Park neighborhood. Truce Street was, and still is, a clear racial dividing line. West of True Street is a mostly white neighborhood, and east of True Street, where the Research Medical Center is located, is a mostly black neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, that was the, became the de facto racial dividing line, in part because a developer named J.C. Nichols. 
This is Whitney Terrell, a novelist and professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. We met him in episode one. The houses that he built west of Troost were covenanted, meaning that you, they could not be, that it was written into the contract of the house that if you were black, you couldn't buy or rent any of this property. And his covenants were enforced by neighborhood associations, right? So they were stronger than covenants in other neighborhoods. So other neighborhoods desegregated in the 50s and 60s, but the Nichols neighborhoods did not. And so that is, that's part of the long racial history of the city. J.C. Nichols. He was a prominent Kansas City residential and commercial real estate developer in the early 20th century. The imprint of his work can still be seen all over Kansas City, including outdoor shopping malls, museums, even UMKC. But he baked racist and anti-Semitic clauses into his real estate contracts so that the only residents allowed to buy or rent houses in his neighborhoods were white. You build the city based on this idea that white space is more valuable than mixed race space, okay? And then Brown versus Board of Education passes in 1954, and suddenly you have to desegregate the schools. And now Kansas City waited until the 1970s to do this, okay? So, but, but people start moving out of the city in anticipation of that. At the time of his arrest, Robert Courtney was living in Tremont Manor, an upscale subdivision near Interstate 29 and Missouri 45 in Kansas City North. Mayor Lucas describes the stark contrast between where Courtney lived in Tremont Manor and where he worked in the Swope Park neighborhood. Where Dr. Courtney lived is 10 miles away, but it seems like 100 miles apart. Your demographics are drastically different. Your problems in some way seem different. My neighbors are worried about um, economic opportunity, actually having jobs, crime around them, having a city that actually even represents them and thinks about them. Dr. Courtney and his neighbors were thinking about something very different. Who is who's the best donor? Who's the best philanthropist? How do we become the newly impressive suburb? I will say this, just as a, as a lawyer and a random guy who exists in the world, the easiest criminality um, to witness is when you have sufficiently othered um, your victims. Everything Mayor Lucas is saying brings me back to these concepts of trust and perception that we've been exploring since the beginning of the season, about the tendency to assume that certain people are trustworthy and others are not. Did the fact that Robert Courtney was a rich, white, educated man influence people to believe that he was good? Did the perception of him being this brilliant entrepreneur make people believe that he was ethical and trustworthy? And the amazing thing is, in every image one has ever seen of Dr. Courtney, there's that one television image of him like working in the pharmacy, which they ran repeatedly on KCTV and all these other channels, um, which was just, it's like, this guy who does seem actually like we should have been able to tell that that soulless looking pharmacist would be the sort of guy that would actually um, harm so many. But it, it surprises us. It surprises us. It, it surprised me as a person who went to church a lot more then, but still does. And uh, and it completely shattered our view of Kansas City. This nice place. We're all sweet. We're just humble. And we're all shucksy. And it turns out, no, we just have financial fraudsters who are like trying to exploit people like everywhere else. Yeah. 
It's interesting that you talk about perception and, and you know, your individual perception of looking at Robert Courtney's photo. And um, I personally agree. But many people that I've interviewed talked about their perception of him and how he, they said, looked trustworthy. And I think that's a really interesting way to phrase it. What does that mean? He looked well-dressed. You know, he looked professional. He wore a white coat. Um, but I'm kind of exploring this idea of perception and how someone looks and also, and how we view them as criminal or not criminal, which might segue us into more modern day COVID, you know, 2020, when Robert Courtney was up for release. Last year, in July of 2020, Robert Courtney's request for compassionate release was approved. He was set to be released from prison after serving only 19 years of his 30-year sentence. Along with many others, Mayor Lucas took to social media to express his feelings about the news. He tweeted, I can only imagine the difference between Dr. Robert Courtney and the thousands locked up for drug offenses still serving almost full sentences. Embarrassing. Courtney misled 4,000-plus sick and dying cancer patients and profited in the millions. Sad how humane we are only to some. Is this a program for children, or can I just say my real thoughts? Say your real thoughts. It's like the most fucked up thing ever, right? That the well-dressed white guy is like, oh my God, he can never be a criminal. Whereas I was raised, raised with indoctrination of black man defendant, right? Did this bad thing. He looks like every black man defendant you've ever seen. Wanted for shooting, wanted for this, wanted in this part of the community. All that sort of stuff. I read Courtney's petition for compassionate release. In it, Courtney, who was 67 at the time, alleged that since being sentenced, he had suffered a stroke, three heart attacks, cancer, and two years of internal bleeding, which required blood transfusions. He goes on to explain that these health conditions put him at a high risk for serious infection if he were to catch COVID-19. The letter details his exemplary behavior while incarcerated— It also talks about his torturous treatment that he himself had endured as a result of being in prison, including years in solitary. He claims that he is a changed man and that he has had the chance to apologize to many victims, including one in person. He describes the heaviness in his heart over the fact that he lost time with his children, his dad, his grandchildren. He regrets that he failed as a businessman and lost the trust of those around him. There is no mention of the premature death of hundreds, possibly thousands, of patients. We actually spoke with the daughter of one of his victims. I'll call her Sarah, although that's not her real name. She prefers to remain anonymous. Sarah's mother passed away as a result of receiving diluted chemotherapy from Courtney. And Sarah was just a teenager at the time. In 2012, she visited Courtney in prison. She said she wanted to see him and try to get some closure. She said the visit was empowering and that he seemed remorseful, but at the same time, she said that Courtney was very focused on the things that he had missed, including his daughter's wedding. She said, quote, I believe him, but I was also never convinced that he truly understood the impact that his actions had, the depth of the hurt that he caused, end quote. When Sarah heard that Robert Courtney was to be released in 2020, She said the thought of him getting out of prison early rocked her to her core. When the absurdity of 
his application to be released on compassionate release because of COVID was making its way through the news. And I started calling elected officials and speaking out against it and the frustrated reporting that many of these um, victims reached out to me and talked to me. This is Mike Ketchmark again. Needless to say, lots of people were enraged by Courtney's request for release and the fact that it was even being considered. They questioned how Courtney could be eligible while others who were in prison for nonviolent offenses were not. It happened so quickly. I mean, he was supposed to, like 24 hours, he was supposed to get out from the time we heard it, which was just insane. And so, yeah, that dredged up everything all over again. And I was writing letters and making phone calls and doing everything I could do to, you know, make sure it didn't happen, as I'm sure 4,000 other people were doing the same. Glenda Bailey's mother, Lola, was one of the thousands of victims, and she believes that Robert Courtney murdered her mother. He doesn't deserve to walk the streets in any capacity ever, ever, ever again. And if you read um, the, the paperwork that he sent to whatever judge or whoever he was pleading for to get out, you know, he thinks he's done all kinds of good stuff in prison so that he would be allowed you know, good behavior to get out. There isn't good enough behavior anywhere for you to be able to get out, ever. He says, oh, I've had two heart attacks and I've battled cancer. Pretty ironic that he ended up with cancer, isn't it? Karma. Yeah. (laughs) Melissa Osborne recounted the large public outcry after Courtney was set to be released. Everybody was so angry and they were so sad, you know, talking to people that this happened to. It was almost like it was 2001 again. None of them seemed to have had any closure yet. And here they're hearing that this horrible, horrible man was going to get to stay in his daughter's home and hold his grandchildren and serve his sentence, the rest of his sentence out. Uh, you know, why should he be able to do that? The public uproar surrounding Robert Courtney's early release caught the attention of local lawmakers who contacted the U.S. Department of Justice about the case. In a letter to Attorney General William Barr, Representatives Emanuel Cleaver and Sam Graves, as well as Senators Josh Hawley and Roy Blunt, wrote, Courtney's crimes are heinous. He acted without consideration for the theft of his victim's health and quality of life, and his actions can be described as no less than purposefully evil. His excuse for, you know, his uh, physical ailments. I mean, like, well, he didn't care about anybody else that got that. Uh, you know, he took away their loved ones, you know. And, and, and even though initially they're saying, well, this is nonviolent. I'm sorry. It may be a different type of definition of violent, but it's not nonviolent. Ultimately, Robert Courtney's request for early release was denied. I was actually on the news talking about it. So something needs to be done. And during my interview, it came down that everybody had gotten onto DOJ and the Bureau of Prisons, and they decided not to release him early. For now, Robert Courtney remains in prison. The earliest he can be released is 2027, his original 30-year sentence having already been reduced due to good behavior. We like to think that in America, we are protected from someone like Robert Courtney. Shouldn't there be laws for that? Well, there are laws. 
But who, if anyone, is enforcing those laws? For the thousands of pharmacies in operation in Missouri, the Missouri State Board of Pharmacy had only a handful of inspectors in 2001. A pharmacy may have gotten inspected once every three or four years. Missouri has since increased the amount of pharmacy inspectors and investigators in the state. They also perform random anonymous testing of compounded products. It's not a perfect system, but it is much better than what they had before. When Robert Courtney was in operation, the only system in place to protect consumers was, well, Robert Courtney himself. It was a system of trust. Trust that a pharmacist would value and protect human life. And Robert Courtney, it turns out, was not trustworthy at all. Melissa Osborne left the FBI after the Robert Courtney investigation. The case made such a big impact on her that she decided that she would become a pharmacist again, but a trustworthy one. Before she left the FBI, she helped name the Robert Courtney case. I can remember the day that we actually named it. I remember being in the squad area and my boss, Judy Lewis Arnold, and we just kind of talked about it and decided, let's ask if we can call it diluted trust. Operation Diluted Trust. Melissa Osborne went on to open a pharmacy very close to where Robert Courtney's pharmacy used to be, and she named it Trust Pharmacy. She doesn't want the story of Robert Courtney and his victims to be forgotten, and she often gives lectures to pharmacy students. She tells the story of Robert Courtney and the investigation. It's a story that's meant to instill in these future pharmacists an understanding of the power that they have over human life and to encourage them to take that responsibility very seriously.
The Opportunist is produced by Kate Mays, Amanda Elliott, and me, Hannah Smith. It is written by Amanda Elliott and me. Keisha Eaton is our researcher. Colin Thompson is our music supervisor and music editor. Austin Olivia Kendrick is our audio editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. John Savak and Colin Thompson are our executive producers. Our podcast art for season two is by Arvin Lee. The ending credits song is I Waited by the Chapel Door by Andrea Litke and Irvin Litke. Our main theme song is by Cholate. Special thanks to James Kirkpatrick Davis, Ashley Mattingly, and Kristen Thurmond. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. I waited in despair. I stepped within the chapel door. up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. 
Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.